I'm Sean Kennedy, and this is Backstage at the Enharmonic. Today's guest is famed clarinetist and instrument designer, Julian Bliss. Julian and I have been trying to get this interview together for well over a year, and through the magic of video conferencing, we were able to do the interview with Julian in London, England, and myself in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We start at the beginning, when Julian first fell in love with the clarinet. Then he discusses the transition from child prodigy to professional adult musician. The possibility of him parachuting out of a plane while playing Flight of the Bumblebee. What it was like playing for the Queen when he was only 12 years old. And we spend a lot of time talking about his ventures into jazz and his reimagining of many of Benny Goodman's classic tunes. I hope you enjoy this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Hello. Hey, you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Sound beautiful. Thank Excellent. you. Excellent. So thanks for uh, doing this, man. I've been looking forward to it so much. Yeah, me too. Finally, finally managed to get it to work. Sorry it's taken so long. Hey, that's all right. Uh, so my first question, uh, what made you fall in love with the clarinet? To be honest, I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I come from a non-musical family. And yeah, music, even in grandparents and, and further back, there isn't really much music most of my family are engineers or or similar and one day i decided that i wanted to play music but at that point i didn't know what instrument i wanted to play but i had this idea in my mind at the age of about four and i wouldn't let it go and i kept on at my parents every day to let me play music and in the end, they finally gave in. Um, they gave me a recorder to start with, which it lasted a, a certain amount of time before I then kind of said I wanted to play something different. And I guess they did what, well, um, the only thing they could took me to a fantastic local music school. Uh, and I had the opportunity to try everything. Wow. And one day... They handed me a, a plastic clarinet, entirely plastic, designed for kids. And instantly I loved it. And I thought, yes, that is the instrument for me. And uh, yeah, never looked back since then. Wow. So as soon as you picked the thing up, it was just a match made in heaven. Like you, it agreed I, with you, made a good sound and everything right away. Well, I, I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> You'd have to ask someone else. <laughs> ask my teacher back then. But I, I do remember trying all these other instruments and, and there was something about the clarinet that I'm not sure. Maybe it was the sound. Maybe it's, maybe I already knew I wanted to play a wind or brass instrument. Maybe that was something in my mind, but I don't really know why. Okay. Um, and of course at that age, you never think about what you're going to do when you grow up. It's not a, oh, well, I've got to got to have a career one day, so I might as well start <laughs> early. Um, it was just because of enjoyment, really. And, yeah, and then managed to turn it into a career, which is, yeah, quite quite awesome, I think. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And uh, watching you play, 
uh, either live or on YouTube, uh, I don't think that enjoyment ever left, uh, which transmits uh, through your playing. Oh, so incredible. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Um, so talking about that, starting so young, and now you're an adult, of course, um, was there a transition period from like child prodigy to professional adult musician? Like, was that a difficult thing? How did that, just tell me about that. I guess, I mean, I mean, people use a lot of different words to describe and, and I never, never saw myself as that. And I, I just enjoyed playing and, but you're, you're right that there is a, I think when you're young, when you're a kid, there's a certain aspect of it that maybe is a, is a novelty almost like, Hey, come and hear this, this kid play the clarinet. And that's a, a, obviously that wears off and you become 16, 17, 18, and you're then amongst some of the greatest musicians in the world. And you're just one of them. And so it is a, it is a transition and Although actually, if someone asked me, well, what can you do to, to make that transition? I, there's not, not one thing, I think, but continuing to work hard. But all of a sudden, you, you kind of find yourself in with the, the, the top guys, top guys and girls, um, and yeah, mixing it with them. And you have to, you have to be, be ready to go and you have to be prepared. Um, to me, I, I didn't really notice it, though, as a, as a transition. But now looking back, I did. I, I was always just focused on working really hard and practicing as much as I could because I just enjoyed performing. But now looking back, there definitely was a, a transition point. And I'm very lucky I had some great people around me to help, help manage that. Mm -hmm. um, at what point, if you remember, um, did you think you might want to do this as a career? I was uh, 12 the day. Well, the day before my 13th birthday, I guess, is, is one of the times I can really pinpoint it. And I had the honor of performing for the Queen, the Queen's Golden Jubilee celebrations, which I, I, don't, I can never find. Maybe one day I'll find the right words to describe how awesome that was. But yeah, as of yet, those words escape me. I, I never imagined I would have the opportunity to do that. And I remember being stood on stage after the performance, looking out to the audience and thinking, this is pretty cool. I, I like this. I like being on stage. I, I like this, you know, all of these people there and watching me play. And it was such an adrenaline rush. And I, I just wanted more. I wanted it all the time. But I guess I, at that moment, I realized that, I could turn this thing that I enjoyed into a career. Um, it sort of snuck up on me in some ways. Um, I mean, there may have been, but in, to be honest, in some ways, if I really want to look at it in, in, in depth and detail, I kind of already was having a career before that point. It was already going that direction, but I, I guess in some ways I didn't realize. Um, yeah, it's interesting to think back. So playing in a venue like that with the queen and everyone looking at you, um, do you go, do you get nervous? Were you nervous? Like what happens backstage? Because it seems so effortless when I've seen you play, like what's happening. In yeah. Um, I, I'm very lucky that I don't, I don't get nervous before I play and I never have. And I do know that there's a lot of musicians out there that get incredibly nervous before they, before they play. Um, and I've tried to think for years, why, why don't I get nervous? I think 
some of it is it feels very much like home i i'm so used to doing it for so many years that being on stage feels incredibly comfortable to me and it's almost my favorite place to be and i think also it's in preparation and also you have to have a certain amount of confidence to walk out on stage and, and play and and know that you can deliver a, a good performance or hopefully a good performance um but to me it's it's the audience give you that last 10 percent or something that you you cannot capture anywhere else in rehearsals yeah you, you make sure it's together you play but in performance that's when the extra whatever it is happens and i think what it is, is i really like the the element of risk and the living on the edge and trying new things on stage and kind of pushing yourself and pushing and and the other musicians as well they're they're trying things music but they can be such subtle things and that is what making music is about is in the moment creating something rather than just going out and performing the piece the same way that you've practiced it over and over and over again and replicating that every performance um you have to i feel like you have to have something in the moment with musicality or phrasing or dynamics or anything um but i love that and it is a real adrenaline rush and then when it works it's great when it doesn't <laughs> that's when uh, yeah you have to try again next time i guess but that's the joy of performing for me and working with other musicians is in the moment you are creating something that is entirely new and that's a lot of fun so i'm going to go off script here a little bit i did have questions prepared but you made me think about another question you talked about that element of risk um is there anything you do outside of music that gives you some sort of adrenaline rush like skydiving or any i don't know anything like that well um quite a lot of my family like i said were engineers but then the other uh, some of my other family are into motorsport so riding motorcycles and driving cars and stuff and so i do ride off off-road motorcycles and i do some track driving i do enjoy a fast car hurtling around the track and trying to get that perfect lap um so yes i maybe i am a bit of an adrenaline junkie in some ways um i've never skydived although i do have i think an outstanding offer uh, that some <laughs> this is hilarious someone said they would pay me a thousand dollars i think it should be more but a thousand dollars to skydive with my clarinet skydive dressed as a bumblebee <laughs> playing flight of the bumblebee <laughs> yeah i think it should be more money but i i definitely would like to see that yeah but definitely i mean I, I i don't know about the the practicalities of it <laughs> but maybe one day maybe one day i'll have to give that a go i think i'd be terrified about it until i actually i think a lot of people say that you're terrified until you jump out the plane and then it feels the most amazing thing but there is part of me that thinks why would i want to leave this perfectly good plane why do i want to jump out of that but yeah cars and, and racetracks i love it i was first introduced to your music as you being a classical artist uh, kind of in a box, you know, as a lot of <laughs> are. And then um, your septet stuff started coming out. And I'm like, wow, this is like killer. I love Benny Goodman and Gene Krupa. Um, 
this is a multi-part question, I guess. Uh, did you get any resistance from anyone that thought of you as a certain thing? And um, is there any difference in reception in European audiences and American audiences with the jazz that you're doing? Um, well, yes, uh, to, I guess to both of those in some ways. Okay. There was, it's interesting because a majority of people were incredibly open-minded and incredibly supportive and thought it was a great thing uh, to, to learn jazz and be involved in that because to me it's it's all the same thing it all comes from the same thing but we'll, that's a that's a conversation for for later on but there were some people is like and the kind of passive aggressive facebook messages saying that i was going to ruin my clarinet playing and that i was going to forget how to form an embouchure and forget how to play classical and it's going to ruin my playing which the more I think about it, the more ridiculous it, it seems. It's not like I'm going to learn jazz and then forget how to play classical clarinet. That is, it's just not not possible. Um, well, in, in my mind, it isn't anyway. To me, the the only um, the only things that would happen would be benefits. Having that ultimate freedom. You know, when you walk out on stage and you're in the middle of a jazz tune and, and you don't really know what's going to happen until it happens. And with the it's the same thing. It's that element of risk. It's that element of of creating something because someone can play a solo and the whole tune goes off in a different direction and you end up somewhere entirely new. And no matter what you do, you can never recreate that another night. It's it's that one thing it's in the moment and i think to have that sense of freedom really does benefit the classical playing um and vice versa i feel like having a classical technique or have been based in classical te technique in um informs and helps the jazz side so for me they are they're so close and so intertwined that i don't you know some people have to consciously make a switch or change instrument or change reeds and ligatures and mouthpieces and all that the only thing i do change i play a slightly softer reed and and that is that's it wow. everything stays the same so. wow cool um so let's see jazz wise have you ever done any saxophone playing or done jazz on bass clarinet or ventured into those areas someone many years ago suggested that i i should play the saxophone um but i mean i'm still learning how to play the clarinet to be honest <laughs> it's one thing at a time here um no to be honest i've never really never seriously thought about it and i think yes saxophone in jazz it did become incredibly popular but there's no reason why you can't also play any type of jazz on, on the clarinet as well. You know? um, and so I decided to focus, focus on the one instrument mainly. I do play some piano um, and I've always enjoyed and loved playing the piano, but yeah, the clarinet was, there was never, never a choice, but bass clarinet. Um, I have, I learned bass clarinet a, a good few years ago now, and then hearing some incredible, jazz on the bass clarinet did did make me think maybe i should do that and so I, i've practiced it a little bit but as of yet no one in public has heard any jazz bass clarinet from me maybe it's something in the future we'll see but 
yeah, there are some amazing, amazing um, jazz bass players out there. Yeah, the uh, one of my favorites is that uh, Bob Mincer recording of uh, Donnelly uh, with Jocko. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I watch I, every time I watch it. It's a brand new performance. It seems like yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah some, some really awesome stuff out there. Really. Uh, so uh, Benny Goodman tunes and Benny Goodman. The next portion of this, I just want to focus on Benny a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. I love all of his stuff. Uh, I think. Well, I know this. His band is the one that got me playing. Uh, I'm a drum yeah. set player by trade. And when I was in seventh grade, I had a cassette and my Sony Walkman. I, I drive with my parents. I heard Gene Krupa. I'm like, that's what I'm doing. And I remember the moment on the uh, New Jersey Turnpike, actually over here. Uh, so um, I kind of go through and I like to play different uh, tunes with my own quartet. And uh, Smooth One is one of my favorite ones ever. Uh, what are some of your, like, maybe your top three Benny Goodman tunes that you like to play? Oh, um, I do like playing Airmail Special. Mm. That's a good tune. There's a little difficult, difficult bit in the middle. That's that's always troublesome to get together. And there are some recordings that are so unbelievably quick of that. Yeah. And you, how do you keep up? But yeah, that's... Um, smooth one is a good one as well that's i do like that's a really good tune um oh what else it's funny when you need to think of them then none come to mind right um some of them I'm trying to think of ones that he he played because there's now a lot that we kind of venture into that we incorporate in some of the shows that you know the gershwin show right uh, memories of you is an incredible beautiful ballad i always love playing that one and um I mean, look, you can't, you can't not like sing, 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 can you? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a staple. <laughs> it is. It is. And yeah, it always gets the crowd going as well. So mm -hmm. I always enjoy that one. Oh yeah. Earlier you asked about the difference between uh, European and American audiences. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Thank and you. I never answered that question. Sorry. Um, I do feel that there is a, is a bit of a difference. And how do i how do i word this this is going to be going to try and be uh diplomatic or, or put it nice put it i don't know i find american audiences are very outgoing in a in a really good way they're not afraid to make some noise and you know it, at times get up and dance in in the aisles and and the more that you get from an audience, especially in jazz, I mean, I wouldn't suggest that in the middle of a concerto, but, um, but the more you get back from an audience, it's like it turns up the level and then you start feeling that. So then you push the boundaries even more and it, it just keeps going from there. So the, it just feels like a really fun atmosphere. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that European audiences are not like that, but it's certainly American audiences. You really do pick up on that, that they go out, have a fun time. Let's, let's go and enjoy it. And yeah, certainly very outgoing audiences, which is great. Um, based on everything I see on YouTube and what I'm listening to, you always perform everything live together. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. Recordings. Yeah. 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 yeah so the last recording we did, um, because some people do separate they have people in in booths and and really separated there are benefits to that but they're also there's pros and cons so the last album we did and you can see some some videos we were somewhat separated but still all in the same room so we had some screens between us um and we did have we had cans on headphones on so we could hear hear the things that we wanted to the reason we did that is 
you can have much more control over the sound um, rather than you, you sometimes would get spill you know often the drums would then spill over into the clarinet mic so then if you wanted to adjust the sound you you, you it's a lot more limitations that way so to have a bit of separation does does help but i don't like the i mean i understand understand why people do it but for us we we do like to all be in the same room and all play together at the at the same time um yeah and that's how we've that's how we did the last album and i think it worked out quite nicely yeah it's it's great because i think there's so many things that are actually overproduced and especially when i'm in the car i do a lot of listening in the car and um, I'm listening and I'm like, these guys were not even in the same room with each other, other recordings. As soon as I put you guys on, I'm like, I could hear that, almost that sense of danger. Like there was that, I could feel the energy happening. And I'm like, these guys were definitely together. So I appreciate that. That's awesome. Yeah. And you can also tell, I think, sometimes if people record things at different times, you know, like they, they have the, I think for small band stuff, it doesn't work. For some big stuff, logistically, sometimes that's the only way you get the horn section in right. but for something that's a small group there's so much of that kind of playing off each other mm-hmm. what the rhythm section do some of their um the way that they play if they put emphasis on on certain things that then inspire you to play in a certain way so yeah i don't think there's any other way of of doing it really so your band itself uh when you decided decided to go into this venture of jazz um, had you already had connections with a lot of these guys or did you just go, Hey, I need a jazz band. Like <laughs> what had happened? Well, so I'll try and be quick about this whole story, but it was, I was, I was putting together a recording or uh, thinking about a recording of Copeland's clarinet concerto, which was written for Benny. And the idea came up to include some Goodman tunes on that album, but arranged for clarinet and orchestra. And I hadn't thought about that before. So I thought, yeah, this might be cool. So I went home and started researching. And then I thought, well, it would be really nice to have drums. And then I thought, well, it'd be nice to have a bass in there to give, you see where it's going. And it just kind of grew. And uh, then I thought, I then listened a lot. And I loved the sound of the clarinet and vibes together. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, we have to, we have to have vibes. And I think how I how we ended up settling on this lineup is that we wanted to do a lot of the Goodman originally the Goodman small group stuff, but also be able to create a bigger towards big band sound when when we needed it for some of those tunes like Sing Sing Sing. So to have the the options and the variety in sound was was quite important. Um, I first met Neil Thornton. Uh, piano player and he'd done a, a project with a, a singer and then from there we both he he knew some people his son actually tim is the bass player and so we kind of I, I heard some people play and asked them if they explained and asked them if they'd come and play and yeah we just put people together that we thought might might work and it's uh i remember the first concert it was so much fun and I mean, the lineup that, that we have now, we have had for a number of years is, is amazing. And every time we do a concert, it's like my jaw is on the floor and you hear these guys play night after night. And some of the most, I can't describe it. You just, it's sometimes you just want to put your clarinet down. It's like, I, you know what? I can't do it. Um, you know, for example, I mean, they're, they're all, all standout musicians and the, I guess the biggest thing 
is we all get along really well. So when we tour, we, often we do every other year, we do a tour of the US and it's 10 or 11 concerts and we're on the road for two weeks. We always hang out together. And a lot of bands, as soon as they walk off stage, they'll go off in their individual directions. And I think because we all get along and we're all friends really helps with all of that. Um, and I, I hope the audience can pick up on that as well. Does that dynamic um, playing with this jazz group, is that impacted? I'm just thinking the backstage scene with an orchestra. It's a little different than hanging with a jazz group. Um, has that, when you're at the classical concerts, it's a whole different thing, but um, just has it changed anything for you backstage or wishing, you know what, I wish the jazz guys were here. I don't know. <laughs> no, um, it is different. And with an orchestra, often as a soloist, you go in, on your own you go and do the rehearsals you work with the, the orchestra and the conductor and then then you leave and you're not around unless you have someone there with you but most of the time you're just on your own and when you're touring it can it can be a lonely place um and i i really like that when touring with the band is that it's, it's just like being with your friends but often with the orchestras, you get to hang out with the conductor and uh, hang out with some of the orchestra musicians. You know, sometimes the, the clarinetists in the orchestra, they want to hang out for a bit, which is great. And, and over the years as well, having had the opportunity to perform and, and go back to a lot of these orchestras, you do start to, to know people. Um, so I wouldn't say it's one is better than the other. I mean, yeah, it's always nice being with your friends, but it's, um, yeah, I, I never never thought about it as a as a negative thing, really, with playing with orchestras. Um, different, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just a different different thing. All right. So the the Benny charts that you do, um, do you uh, notate those and arrange those yourselves, or is it a lot of listening, or both? Like, how does the band know what to play? So in the beginning, we found arrangements that we we liked, kind of the overall structure, and then started as that started with that. And but in naturally in rehearsals, we'd all get together and we'd all have different ideas. We'd all have things that we think, oh, let's let's try this or let's try this feel or this tempo. And so it starts to evolve. And what we've been doing more over the last couple of years is, I guess, what I what I want to do now and what I what I have been thinking is to for audiences to recognize these fantastic tunes, but it be in in new ways with new or modern, more modern chord changes or, or you know, and that, that comes through anyway, because especially the guys, and we had this conversation. I remember they, they asked, they said, should we try and stick to soloing in, a, in this one particular style? And I said, no, just, just play. Because I, I didn't want there to be any limitations. And I think that's what that's what they're great at just playing like them and so it's it's taking those fantastic classic tunes and sort of modernizing them uh, in a very hopefully a very natural way uh, that we that we try and that's what we try and achieve but still i think still having that identity of you want people to know what it is that they're, they're listening to and be able to identify with it and make it accessible at the same time as well okay Great. Do you use um, any software like Finale or Sibelius or anything like that? Yeah, I, I use Sibelius. Um, I have done for, for quite a number of years for either the jazz side, also on the classical as well for arranging pieces. And there's there's always things that I'm looking to arrange and to um, to perform that were written for other instruments. So, yeah, have uh, 
got more to grips with Sibelius over the last couple of years than ever before. How much do you guys practice uh, a set before you go into the studio to record it? Well, we would, it, it certainly has a, it has a life and it does evolve quite a lot. And the first couple of performances, you know, you're still kind of finding your feet, even though you've rehearsed it, you've, you've spent the time. The first couple of performances are always, it, it was something new, but then over time it just becomes, and, and we can feel the difference and, and hear the difference as well. It just becomes, and it, it all kind of comes together and all of our sounds meld together and the way that we play all, it becomes one. And the more we play together, the more that happens. And so with this, the last album, that we, or the one we just released this year, we'd been performing a lot of those tunes for, for quite some time. Mm. So the, the longer you can, to a certain extent, the longer you leave it, sometimes the better it gets. Um, but you don't want to leave it so long that, you know, if you've been playing the same tunes for years and years, you then it can have a, a, have a different sound as well. But we, it is always nice to really get get it bed in, get it into you, uh, so you just know know it all, and then you can kind of go off piste a little bit during a during a tune. Um, yeah, so probably a good couple of seasons, I would say, of performances, or at least a season. Um, but it's interesting. It would it would be an interesting thing to do to to record something that is very fresh. And I mean, even just for us, and then record something that we've played a lot and see how big a difference we can hear. Right. Um, but certainly we feel it. I, I know that much. So the cartoons, the Benny Goodman cartoons, uh, all the cats join in. And after you've gone, I'm sure you know those. Yeah. Uh, amazing. They're awesome. Have you guys ever thought of trying to get in touch with any type of animators um, to do something similar? I would love to. I would love to do that. And I think incorporating the visual aspect with, with the, with the audio is, is a great thing. I think the only thing stopping us is that animators and things like that tend to be fairly expensive. Um, and yeah, the good ones as well, even for something short, I've looked into other on, on the classical side, some kind of animation or um, video production and, yeah, the cost can can go up quite quickly, but you know that's when when you if you want the the best, then you've got to pay for it, I guess. Right. Um, but it would be it would be amazing to do something like that at some point in the future. I'd really I'd really enjoy that. So speaking of classic recordings and performances, um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Is there any recording out there that you wished, if I had a time machine, you could have played on such uh, on a recording on one re one or two recordings? I think the first one that comes to mind because I was listening, listening to it today was um, Ella Fitzgerald at, and Duke Ellington. Um, it was live at Duke's place. Is that, is that what it's called? Yeah. Awesome album. And yeah, if I could have played on that, I would have been, I mean, to be honest, any, any of those, any Ella Fitzgerald album, any Frank Sinatra album, any, I, I always, I love those, those singers, you know, um, and Nancy Wilson, for example, some of the most amazing voices. And yeah, if I could have played on any of those, well, actually now thinking about it, I think I would have almost done anything to have the opportunity to play with Oscar Peterson. Oh, um, but I probably would have been too, too scared to play a note because I mean, ridiculously good. 
it's just I, I was trying to describe it to someone the other day and the only way i can describe it is it's just right it's just what it should be mm-hmm. if someone asks what you know what oh how should jazz piano sound to me that's it the so effortless and oh, i could go on for hours talking about it but it's just yeah the touch that he had on the piano um and of course there are other incredible amazing um jazz piano players but for something about oscar's playing i could just listen to all day every day yeah a testament to that was a couple of years at the nam show i don't know if you saw it um outside of yamaha they had a piano set up that had some computer stuff and it was playing oscar peterson solos like someone had done that and you could see the keys going down the guy wasn't there it was basically a robot but there was a huge crowd around it because it was oscar's uh music being played on the piano which is incredible yes yeah, steinway have um have a system as well and they've managed to take actual audio from those classic performances and extract it and i remember i think it was i think it was duke and i i pressed the button on the ipad the app to to play it and i just sat back and the piano played <laughs> exactly his the his touch it, it, as if he was there and it was really weird actually yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> but amazing mm-hmm. and it's like you you were there and they were playing the piano in front of you right that, that there's some really cool technology around these days so speaking of technology uh the pandemic you know we've all been dealing with this and covid um have you learned anything new being cooped up for all these months have you acquired any new skills any new appreciations anything like that um yes in terms of audio recording equipment i went down that rabbit hole and um i think what it was after a couple of months of being locked up at home and it was challenging times for everybody and there are people out there that had um had things far worse unimaginable compared to to me not having work um so it almost was bad to say that but you know after a while of the phone ringing and everything being postponed and cancelled i kind of feel a bit lost almost and i thought there has to be something i can do and so i thought about a while ago i had i had done a a multi-track recording of some steve reich and I thought about doing something in that same vein, but maybe a bit more ambitious. And so I decided that having a good pair of microphones would be something that I, I probably should have anyway. So I started researching and people know what it's like. You you start looking at one level and you think, Oh, for just, just a bit more, I could have this. And then you think, well, you know, if I look after them, then they'll last forever. I mean, not forever, but as long as your playing career, really, and so i ended up then the the audio interface and uh, recording to logic so i got all of that and then started to get to grips with how to record myself and get the best sound and in the end recorded this ep which comes out uh june 11th i think and it's american band music so three of the biggest american band composers john mackey eric whittaker and frank to kelly wow and um they wrote Uh, those guys are celebrities i've seen the autograph lines the queues of hours long people waiting to get these guys autographed Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of 
a lot of people in the US, if they were in band at school, they, they know all of those composers. They know that repertoire. Anyway, so I picked a piece from each of them, wow. one of their, I guess, most famous, and arranged them for multiple clarinets and percussion. I didn't play the percussion part. You'll be happy to hear. A good friend of mine called Joby Burgess did that. Um, Joby. Yeah. There's, yeah, he, oh, he's awesome. Yeah, he's great. And so there's, I think, on average, about 30 clarinet parts in each each piece, all the way from the E-flat to the contrabass clarinet and everything in between. And so I recorded it all here. Joby recorded his at his place. I then had the task of putting it all together and doing the mixing and doing any editing and all of that stuff. And I loved it. I mean, it took months. It took so long to to get it to a point that I was happy with, even in in terms of you know the the sound and and the mix element and even even the playing the the recording. But it's yeah, I've I've really enjoyed it, and I, I hope everyone else does too when they hear it. It's it's a really interesting sound hearing that many clarinets um, and and all the percussion going. But anyway, in short, um, yeah, the music technology side um i've learned and the problem is i keep looking at microphones now yeah. oh you know oh i could do with this pair i could do with that pair and you might be able to see how you know you, this room is somewhat acoustically treated as well so um i think it's good though and it, it made me think as well i think musicians if they are playing live and being um mic'd amplified or if they're in, in the studio i think it's good for them to have some understanding of what equipment is is being used to record them and to have an idea of what sound they like you know do you prefer the the maybe slightly darker sound of a ribbon microphone or the really clean clinical sound that you get from from some others and i think to have that knowledge i don't know i like it maybe some other people think i just i just want to focus on the playing but yeah, now I always annoy the engineers whenever I do any radio broadcast or anything by asking them a million questions about all the equipment they have. But sure. Yeah, it, some, it happened to me too. I went down the rabbit hole with recording and it really made me realize why these top studios deserve the cash they're getting because I, I started to realize everything I don't know and I'm like, oh, they're really good and they deserve every dime they get when we go into those studios. And and then there is an element of finding good engineers, and I'm very lucky f for all of my albums. Actually, I've done now, um, had the same engineer, and you, it's just something that experience, the years of experience, give you that you can't recreate at all. You can have all the equipment in the world, but you need the right person to to make it all happen. A couple of these questions came from clarinet player friends of mine. I told them I was going to be talking to you and they were like texting me. They're like, Ask him that. <laughs> so some of them I've already embedded into what we've talked about. Um, but without a doubt, I think every clarinet player that I told I was talking to you uh, wanted to know about how you started designing instruments um, and having the bliss clarinet, et cetera. Like, could you just tell us the story about that? Yeah, it's uh, I think it's about if not 15 years, pretty close to it since I started working with Conselma, um, which it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't seem real almost that it's that long. And I had the opportunity. I, I was at Frankfurt uh, music Messe, the music show, which is the, at one time, the, the German equivalent to the NAM show. And I went by uh, Leblanc, which is a company owned by one of the many companies that Consum were owning. And they had a new instrument, a new LeBlanc clarinet. And I 
loved it so much it was only a prototype so much that i i wanted that prototype i was like i i want i want that one can i can i take it no you can't it's a prototype um I was like, oh, but please i promise i'll look after it you know um and he, at that point got to meet uh, everyone at the company and even the president at the time and we then started to talk i became an artist first of all and we just found we all got along pretty well and we all had a, a similar view which was that these days especially on the the intermediate side if you like or the the student market if you want to put a put a tag on it sometimes the instruments are not as high quality as i think they should be and when you're a young student learning how to play, you should, I'm not suggesting uh, for a moment, it should be all professional, you know, thousands and thousands of dollar instruments. No, but they should be very high quality, consistent instruments that allow you to, to develop as a, as a player. And normally that comes with, with the quality comes with great expense. And so we all had this same idea. And then one day it kind of came up with how can we, can we try and fix that can we try and do something about that and that's how the the first the bliss clarinet was was born um with a focus on creating an incredibly high quality uh clarinet that was an affordable price by using lots of new technology and lots more automation and, and machines and in the beginning i mean at, at that point what was i I was a teenager. I just about knew how to play the clarinet. I'd never been in a corporate boardroom and corporate meetings before, but I love a challenge. And now if I look back, I'm so glad that I, I, I did it because it's changed my life in so many ways. And so I, at the beginning, I, I didn't know anything about the engineering side, but very quickly started to to learn that side of things you know that then I would, I would they would give me a prototype instrument i would try it and i would give very you know artistic feedback you know a darker sound warmer sound brighter this tuning and then they would have to interpret that in in numbers um and yeah over the years we we made these instruments and, and people loved them which was which was great and i grew myself and learned so much more about the whole process and being part of a, a big huge corporation like that and i think we all just got along really well and and it evolved so much so that now i i know so much more about the the intricacies and i'm deeply involved in the product development um, but also then the getting out there and and um talking to people and consam have a really big education division as well it's, it's huge and they're very focused on inspiring young musicians and so i think in normal times i think on average i do about 300 events for them a year um yeah and that's everything from going into middle schools and talking to the bands to high schools to universities to band directors to even a couple of kindergartens i've done before which is it's like trying to herd cats at that point yeah. I mean, they're everywhere but they love it and you know they love the sound of the instrument but yeah it, it's evolved and now I'm an artist. I, I'm an employee as well, um, and work really closely with them on on development and also um, with all of our dealers across the country and the education. And it's I, I wouldn't change it for the world. I really wouldn't. And now we have have some new instruments on the way out, and yeah, lots of new stuff happening as well. So it's very exciting. I like it.
Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thanks to them. I got to meet you because I was out there doing some business with the percussion guys at the NAM show. And I'm like, is that Julian Bliss? It is Julian Bliss. So <laughs> well, good on NAM show. I, I missed it. I missed yeah. it. Yeah, it I, know. I can't wait. I, I, I think it's happening again. I think uh, Nashville's happening. So hopefully um, the winter one happens. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I know. Hopefully we'll be able to meet in person. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if you had one or two things to just say to a kid that wanted to go into music as a, a career, what would your advice be? I can't um, claim this piece of advice um, because it was very simple, but given to me by someone I look up to and uh, yeah, the greatest, one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time, uh, Wayne Shorter. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, just, just Wayne Shorter. You know? um, first of all, the, the nicest person I've ever met. He's such an, such a lovely man and so giving and sharing his ideas and some of the stories he has are incredible but i i i had a, a fangirl moment and i the, one of the first times in my life i asked him someone to autograph a, a a picture and i asked him if he'd do that and he wrote on it never give up and it's such a simple piece of advice but it's so true in music in anything I think for young people, they, for them to realize it's not easy. Being a musician is not an easy thing. The practice can be hard. It can be challenging. There can be times where you feel like you're not getting any better. And sometimes you think about just stopping, especially when you're young, you think, oh, this is hard. I'm going to do something else. But you have to keep going. You have to persevere in order to, to get the success that you, to get to the level that you want. And I think it's that realizing that it does take a huge amount of work and dedication and you won't always succeed. You know, you, you'll go for an audition, you'll go for a, uh, a job and you won't get it. And yeah, it will get you down. You think, oh, that's a shame, but always try and use it as a learning experience to you know, think, what can I do better for next time? And I think it's that constant quest for, for improvement and i was going to say quest for perfection which i guess it is we're all we're all chasing this the perfect performance it doesn't exist there is no such thing but we're all we're all going for that perfection and i think it's that that, that keeps driving you so listen to musicians you look up to listen to them talk um and yeah just just don't give up and you can I think the other thing for young people, so I'm, I know I'm, I'm taking this answer and I'm going elsewhere with it, but for young people, they, they see these great musicians and sometimes they think, I can't do that. They hear someone play and they think, I'll never be able, I'll never be that good. But you have to think, why not? Why, why? It's entirely possible. If they've done it, then so can you. It just depends how much you actually want it. Um, and it's all out there. You can you can have anything you want. Well, not you know, within reason. Um, yeah, if you if you want to put the time and the effort and the the dedication into it. Um, so yeah, in short, never give up. Beautiful, excellent. Uh, well, this was a real pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I'm glad it finally happened. Yeah, me too. Thank you. If people want to find you on the internet, where should they go? What's one of the best places to find out what's going on? 
so my website julianbliss.com you can find me on there i am fairly active on the old social media channel so instagram and facebook you can find me find me on there i try and post as regularly as i can and uh, all the recordings are also on spotify and apple music and amazon whatever your your streaming service of choice is um you should be able to find them there well outstanding uh so thank you very much i hope you have a great weekend and hopefully we'll be able to connect again in person at the nam show uh this coming year i can't wait all right julian thank you very much thanks bye-bye thanks again to julian bliss for being my guest here on backstage at the enharmonic and a special shout out and thank you to Doris Hall-Galati, Rose Budakoffer, and Chris Colinari for helping me formulate some meaningful questions for Julian. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking out this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. For more great interviews like this, please visit my website, www.seanjkennedy.com, and click the podcast tab.